I'm going to read for us this morning, but we'll pray. We'll pray first. Father, we thank you for the amazing privilege that it is to gather as your church. Father, we thank you that that you bought us with a price. Father, a price that cost your son his life. And Father, as we come to this passage this morning, Father, I pray that we will come in awe of who you are, in awe of your word, And Father, we will not miss your faithfulness from generation to generation. And Father, you never change. And you are sovereign in all things. And I pray this morning, Father, if anyone is feeling rocked or unsettled, Father, that they will know that you are in control, that you are the sovereign God, and at no point in history have you lost control and you're not about to start. So, Father, I pray as a church we will press into that. Father, I pray that we will stand firm on your word and that we will take seriously declaring the hope of who you are to our land. Father, we pray for Alan as he comes to expand your word. I pray that you would, Holy Spirit, that you would be all that he needs. Father, give him the words to say. And just pray this in your name. Amen. Our reading this morning is from Matthew 1, and it is the genealogy of Jesus Christ. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ the son of David and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zahar by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nation, and Nation the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of the king of David, David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by his wife Uriah, and Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Esaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of 
Abide and Abide the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Ezor, and Ezor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Elad, and Elad the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mahan, and Mahan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to Christ, 14 generations. This is God's word. Well, good morning. Thank you for the welcome. Thank you to Emily for reading uh, that, that list. I dare say when you got to Mary, when Mary was just on the horizon, it probably felt like a big relief uh, as, as you work your way down through. If, if you're not familiar with that list of names, you maybe wonder why on earth would we spend all that time reading, reading those names. Um, and hopefully that will become clear over the next few weeks. This is a, the beginning of an Advent series uh, that's been planned by the, by the leaders of the church. Um, and uh, over the next few weeks, um, the, the idea is to focus on the stories of the four Old Testament women, and I guess Mary as well, the New Testament, the New Testament lady, um, to focus on their stories as a way of anticipating um, the celebration of the coming of Jesus. Um, it, it occurs to me that there's, if any of you are familiar with the, with the singer-songwriter Andrew Peterson, does that ring any bells with anybody? No? Yes? One or, one or two? Uh, you need to go and Google this. You need to go and Google this at lunchtime. You need to look up Andrew Peters. He's a brilliantly talented American singer-songwriter. Um, and he has a, he has a, an Advent album or a Christmas album. It's, it's a very non-typical, uh, Christmas album. But one of the songs on it is called Matthew's Begats. Okay? And that's based off the, the old King James idea, you know, so on, so begat, so on, so begat, so on, so on, so on, uh, all of, all the way down through. And it is absolutely brilliant. And you should probably make it the theme song for the next uh, four Sundays up uh, up to Christmas. It's also, um, we've just come past uh, what many Americans, most Americans, I guess, celebrate as Thanksgiving. And I think there are probably a few Americans in the room. And I know there's at least uh, one other connection with America, with uh, John, who's, who's there at the moment. Um, from if any of you who've been disturbed, as I was deeply disturbed last night, to see the photograph of John's haircut on Facebook. Um, word is that apparently that is photoshopped. Um, now that's, that's what I was told this morning. His wife is fairly relaxed about, uh, about this. So presumably it is indeed photoshopped. Certainly it, it, I wouldn't say it caused me a sleepless night. Um, but it was, it was very disturbing to see his, his hairstyle. So he's there. He's had to be able to, to celebrate Thanksgiving. Um, when my wife and I lived in Switzerland, which we did for 17 years when we worked with the church there, um, we had Americans in our congregation, and occasionally um, we would be invited to celebrate Thanksgiving with one family or other. And a few of them, a few of the the, the uh, invitations stand out in my mind, uh, like the one where the lady who was cooking the turkey. I forgot the detail. I've forgotten the technical detail of what happened, but basically she misunderstood the thermometer. Uh, and we had to wait quite a long time for our turkey to be ready. Um, but another one that another one that stands out in my mind was probably the the last one that we participated in when we were there. And uh, we were invited by a couple 
sadly, the, the, the husband of this couple uh, sadly died at the beginning of this year in an accident in America. Um, but one of the things we discovered uh, as we sat around and had this Thanksgiving meal was that he was a descendant, a direct descendant of someone who had been on the Mayflower. And that, of course, was uh, the, the pilgrims who, who made their way to New England uh, and who celebrated the first Thanksgiving in 1621. So almost 400 years later, we were sitting at a table with someone who was able to tra- trace his family tree all the way back uh, to that. Now, I think there are quite a lot of Americans. It's been 400 years, so there's probably been quite a lot of descendants of, of the original pilgrims that were on the Mayflower. Um, but still, there was something special about that, be able to trace your family tree all the way back to that very first Thanksgiving. And it's a record of a family line um, that we're focused on then over these next few weeks. Um, it's, it's obviously not the only genealogy. That's, the, that's what a family line is. It's not the only genealogy in Scripture. <clears throat> it's not even the only one in the Gospels. There's another one uh, that records uh, the story of Jesus, D- does it in a slightly different way. Um, but for various reasons in biblical times, at various times in the, in, in the biblical story, it was important to be able to trace who your ancestors were. So, for example, if you were from a priestly family in the Old Testament, and you were going to serve as a priest at the temple, you needed to be able to trace your pedigree. It wasn't just anybody who could volunteer to be a priest. Um, and for us, you know, some of us have a bit of an interest in, in family trees, and we'll say more about that a little later on. Um, but, but maybe many of us, we, we don't pay a huge amount of attention to it. And if you apply for a job, they're probably not going to ask you to produce your family tree from the past couple of hundred years or so. That, that's not going to be a requirement. And I think it's tempting for us when we, when we read uh, the genealogies, when we come to these genealogies in, in, in Scripture, including the one that we've just read with all of Matthew's begats in it, um, it's tempting for us just to, to hit the fast forward button um, and try to just jump ahead uh, a little bit and get to the get to the narrative of the story, but yet they're there, and I think if we just skip ahead, and certainly if we just skip ahead on Matthew's genealogy, I think there are some things that we miss. For one thing, the fact that Matthew starts his story of Jesus by recording the family line of Jesus all the way back to Abraham, it it connects it it helps to connect Jesus to history. Let me explain what I mean. A number of years ago, a friend of mine who used to work for Wycliffe Bible Translators, that's the group of people who, uh, whose aim is to translate Scripture into every language on the planet. Um, they're making great progress. There's still some to go. Um, but my friend, my friend told a story of a man who was part of a people group called the Olo. So it's O-L-O. Um, and that people group is in Papua New Guinea. And this man had got his Bible uh, and he was reading it. Now, by way of background, in his culture, the old, among the Olo people, it was really important to be able to know your genealogy. Genealogies were important. And so as he began to read through the Bible, reading through Genesis, he came to Genesis chapter 5. So not the, not the uh, genealogy of Jesus, but another genealogy in Genesis chapter 5. And when he got to Genesis 5 and read this genealogy, he got excited about it. Now, you and I, we're reading the genealogy. We think, oh, man, here we go. All this list of names, hard enough to pronounce them. Never mind why on earth are they, why on earth are they there. Let's just get on with the stories. 
He got really excited about it. And here's what he said. He said, now I know this book is true. No man would have written all this if he had made it up. But God wanted us to know that this is true and that these are real people who did these things. These are real people who did these things. Now, that's talking about an Old Testament genealogy, but the principle is true when it comes to Jesus as well, isn't it? These are real people who did these things. Matthew is saying to us that Jesus is not a myth, not just some idea that someone has dreamt up, but he is a real person with real ancestors. So he connects him to history. But the second thing to notice, and this is really important also, is that the genealogy starts by mentioning two very significant Old Testament characters. So if you have your Bible in front of you and you look all the way back up to the, to the, the opening verse, you'll see that it says, this is the genealogy or the book of the genealogy of Jesus, the, the Messiah, the Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, why highlight these two people out of all the others? Why not say he was the son of one of the other kings, for example? Well, we need to know a little bit, remind ourselves a little bit about Abraham and David. We'll take them in chronological order. Both of these men were people to whom God had made very significant promises. And they were promises that weren't just about their own lives and their own lifetime. And you know, God wasn't just coming and saying, hey, I'm going to sort your life out for you. and It's going to be wonderful. But they were promises that carried a significance far beyond their own lifetime and far beyond their own story. So God said to Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, when he called Abraham, he said to him, I'm going to make you a blessing. I'm going to give you many descendants. And through your offspring... All of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Hugely significant. And when you read your way through the Bible, what you need to keep in mind is with all of the ups and downs of the stories that you come across and all of the times that you scratch your head and think, what's going on here? God has a promise that through a descendant of Abraham, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. So that's the first promise. David also receives promises from God. So that, and and most notably, there was an incident or time in David's life when David said, you know, here I am and I've got, I'm very comfortable where I live, but God needs a house to live among us here in Jerusalem. God, the the presence of God had been um, mediated really through a tabernacle, a tent that people could carry around. And David's thinking, it's time that we had a temple in which we would worship our God. And God sends a message to David, and the message is, David, that's wonderful that you want to build a house for me, a temple, but tell you what, you're not the man to do it. It was actually going to be David's son who would do that. But I tell you what, says God, I'm going to build a house for you. Now, he doesn't mean a house that's made out of bricks and mortar or stones or anything like that. He means a household. He means a family. I'm going to establish your family. And he says, one of your descendants will have a throne, and his throne will be established forever. Now, if you're a king, that's very encouraging news. So you see those two promises. To Abraham, in you and from, from your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. David, you will have a, a son, and your son will have his throne established forever. Two very significant Old Testament promises. 
So when Matthew starts his gospel, the first thing he does is say to us, Jesus, the Christ, is the son of Abraham, the one who had that promise that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And he's the son of David, the one who had that promise that one of his descendants would sit on his throne forever. And what Matthew is preparing us for is the realization that this Jesus, whose story he's going to tell us, is the, is the one in whom those promises are going to come to fulfillment. So that's a general comment about uh, Matthew's genealogy. But one of the things that we need to pay attention to, and it's what's going to be the focus of the next few Sundays, um, and by the way, anybody who's got a long memory here or a good memory here, um, do you remember 2015? You were around 2015. Same series. Um, it's, it's revisiting that. I was looking up an old journal. I was looking up a journal this morning, and I, and I could see that I was uh, preaching in one of the one of the parts of the series um, uh, six years ago in 2015. But of course, the thing that drives this series, <clears throat> and it's something that makes the genealogy a bit different, is the fact that there are women who are mentioned in it. Now, ladies, bear with me here. I didn't write the Bible. I didn't compose these genealogies. Uh, and we want to acknowledge uh, right up front that in the birth of all of these sons whose names are mentioned and all of these men who are mentioned in the genealogy, uh, in, in the birth, it's, it's generally it's the women who do most of the heavy lifting, okay? Even if they're not named, that is the reality. But from the point of view of a genealogy, uh, in the ancient world and in the world of Scripture, it's unusual to have the names of many women mentioned in these genealogies. It's not, <clears throat> it's not um, unprecedented. First Chronicles chapter 2 is an example of a genealogy where there are some women who are mentioned there. But, but normally, the genealogies just focus on the, on the men. So so-and-so was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so, was the father of so-and-so. Um, and the ladies, you know, were, despite the heavy lifting, the ladies tended to get left out. But Matthew mentions five of them. <clears throat> now, one, one is Mary, and we think, well, fair enough, mother of Jesus, and uh, this was a miraculous birth. Joseph wasn't his physical father, so maybe that's fair enough that Mary gets mentioned. But he also mentions four Old Testament women. And you think, well, why would he mention these four Old Testament women? Was it just to remind us that, well, ladies are involved in this process after all? Or was there something more to it than that? And you think, were there not others that he could have mentioned? Others whose stories might have been better known or others whose stories might have been a little less controversial or a little less uncomfortable because we're going to see that most of these stories or many of these stories are actually quite uncomfortable. Some of the details are quite uncomfortable. But why not mention Sarah, for example? Along with Abraham, she's, she's the mother of the nation. And in the birth of her son, there was a miraculous element. Not, not to the same extent that Mary giving birth to Jesus was a miraculous birth, but there was still an element of, of the miraculous in Sarah giving birth to her son, to Isaac. Because Sarah was a very old lady by this time, and Abram was a very old man. So you think, well, if you're going to mention women, why not mention Sarah? Because she's this, this notable woman, the, the mother of the nation, plus there's an element of the miraculous in her birth. Doesn't mention her. 
he mentions these four. Verse 3, Tamar, whose story we're going to look at in a moment. Verse 5, Rahab, whose story you're going to look at next week. Verse 5 also, Ruth. And then in verse 6, he doesn't even mention her name. He just calls her the wife of Uriah. And we know that her name is Bathsheba. These are the ones that, and these are the ones that Matthew chooses to mention. And, you know, over time, people have scratched their heads, as maybe we do, and we think, well, well, why these four? What is it about them? What, what is it about their story that, that means that he wants to include them? Do they have something in common with Mary? Is he trying to throw, is he trying to throw some light on the story of, of Mary and, and what happened there? And some people have looked at this and said, well, do you know what? Several of these people are outsiders. And maybe the fact that their names are mentioned, it highlights that the grace of Jesus reaches outsiders. So Tamar uh, was very likely a Gentile. Not It's not specified in Genesis, but there's some Jewish tradition that says that she was a Gentile. Rahab certainly was a Gentile. She was in the city of Jericho. Uh, Ruth was also a Gentile. In fact, not just any kind of a Gentile, but she was from Moab, and Moab were enemies of Israel. And Bathsheba, well, she was married previously to a, a Gentile whose name was Uriah. So some of them were outsiders, and maybe we noticed that about them. Their stories have all got bits to them that are unusual. And as I mentioned, some of the stories are very uncomfortable. The story of Tamar is a very, is an extremely uncomfortable story. The story of Bathsheba is an extremely uncomfortable story. These are scandalous stories. And maybe there was a degree of, of scandal that, that surrounded, um, the, the birth of Jesus. Mother wasn't married to her, to, to her, her fiance at this point. Mary and Joseph weren't married. Mary finds that she's pregnant. There's an element of scandal in that. Is, is that what, what Matthew is, is, is thinking about? Or, and this is another possibility, all of the women find themselves in one way or another in a precarious or vulnerable position. We'll see Tamar's story again. We'll see that in a moment. But Rahab, her story is very precarious. She's very vulnerable simply because she lives in Jericho and just coming along the road is Joshua with the Israelites. And what they're going to do is they're going to, they're going to flatten the city of Josh, of, of Jericho. That's a very precarious place to be for Rahab. Ruth's situation was very precarious. She was a young widow. What was she going to do? Um, and in choosing to go back to live in Bethlehem with her mother-in-law, Naomi, there's a vulnerability in that. Who was really going to look after them? Naomi didn't really have anything to offer her. There was a vulnerability there. There was a precarious situation. If you think about Bathsheba and her vulnerability and the way that she was, uh, she became the, the object of David's uncontrolled lust and the impact that that had on her life. And you think of Mary, because her situation was very precarious as well. Joseph discovers that she's pregnant, and he thinks, whoa, I'd, I'd better divorce this lady, because there's scandal here. I'll do it quietly, because I, I, I don't want to subject her to a degree of public shame. But, but we can't move ahead with this. And it's only when an angel intervenes 
that Joseph is able to go ahead with the marriage. And for a while, her situation is very precarious. You, know, you can think about these things. There are scholars who have written about this, all, all, of, all of these kind of things. Um, and maybe there are several elements that, 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 that resonate as Matthew draws uh, our attention to these stories. And maybe this idea of the precariousness, the vulnerability, is something we need to think about. All of them are rescued. The situations of all of them are recovered. And God uses these women and uses these stories to advance his plan. So Tamar. We read about her in Genesis chapter 38. And it's a little surprising in some ways because Genesis really interrupts another story that's being told in order to tell the story of Tamar and Judah. It's the story of Joseph. And so in Genesis chapter 37, you get the story of how Joseph is sold off by his brothers. Interestingly, and this, this we'll come back to in a moment, interestingly, it was Judah who sold him off. It's only in chapter 39 that the story is resumed. There we get the episode of Joseph and Potiphar's wife, and Joseph ends up being treated unfairly, and he's, he's thrown into prison. And in between those episodes, the story of Joseph will eventually go on for several chapters, but in between those episodes, there is this story of Tamar and Judah. Judah chooses her to become the wife of the first of his sons. His name is Er. Now, when you read the story, Genesis 38, when you read the story, you maybe want to feel a little bit, at least a little bit sorry for Tamar. Because Judah, you know, we think sometimes, we, we, we talk about the lion of the tribe of Judah and how Jesus is from the tribe of Judah, and it was the royal tribe and, and so on and so on, and we think, wow, wonderful. Judah must have been a wonderful guy. Well, Judah had a bit of a past. Remember, he was the brother who decided to sell Joseph to traitors. You know, how would you like, ladies, how would you like to marry into a family like that, where that's the kind of stuff that had been going on? You know, to marry the son of Judah. And it turns out that Er, who marries Tamar, really wasn't an awful lot better than his father Judah. Because what we discover is, Genesis 38 tells us, that the Lord put him to death because he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. We're not given detail about it, but we're simply told that he was wicked in the sight of the Lord. Poor Tamar. She marries into this family. Her father-in-law is the guy who sold his brother. Her husband is a wicked man, so wicked, in fact, that the Lord strikes him down. And here she finds herself then, not only having been brought into this family, but now widowed and without any children. Now, there was a custom. It would eventually become law in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And the custom was that if a man died before he'd had any children, if he had a brother the brother had a responsibility to marry the widow and the first child that would be born would actually be counted as a descendant of the dead husband, the dead first husband. Um, it's called leveret marriage. Uh, as I say, it's mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 35. 
It was so as to carry on the family line of the dead brother. An heir, funnily enough, had a brother. His name was Onan. So according to the custom, heir has died. Here's the widow. Well, next up, you marry, you're going to marry Onan. And Onan, uh, rather deceitfully failed to keep his responsibility to raise up a son for his brother, heir. And his faithlessness, because he wouldn't do his, he wouldn't fulfill his responsibility, that resulted in his death as well. So now you've got Tamar. She's got this father-in-law who's a piece of work. She's lost her first husband who was a wicked man. And now she's lost this guy who's, who's a faithless man. There's a third brother. So you think, well, maybe there's hope yet. Um, and Judah is getting a little bit nervous by now. Understandably so. If you put yourself in Judah's sandals for a moment and you think, well, uh, you know, this woman Tamar, she's a bit dangerous, isn't she? You know, first guy marries her and he's gone. Second guy marries, he's gone. I'm not sure that I want to give my third son to her as well. I, I don't know what's going to happen to him. But he says, hey, tell you what, Tamar, you just go back to your family, you know, where your family's from. Just you go back. You stay there. And when Shelah, who's the third son, is old enough, well, he will marry you. He'll pick up where the two other brothers have uh, not been able to produce any children. So off she goes, back to her father's house. And there she is without any husband, without any children. And in that time, at that time in that culture, that probably meant that she had really very few prospects of a future to look forward to. <clears throat> the only hope would be if Judah would keep his word and give her his third son. That's how precarious her situation was. And of course, to make it worse, Judah had no intention of keeping his word. Uh, he had uh, backed off, didn't want to lose his third son as well. And as time goes by and Judah fails to keep his, own wor- his, his word, well, you've got Tamar and she's waiting. She can't marry anybody else because she's supposed to be waiting for Shelah. But as time goes by, Judah, Judah's first wife, or Judah's wife dies. Um, and Judah, as a widower, later on heads off with his friend to do some sheep shearing. This is in the narrative in Genesis 38. Someone says to Tamar, hey, I hear your father-in-law is in town. And so she hatches a plan, goes to meet him. She disguises herself by putting on a veil. And when Judah meets her, he assumes that she's a local prostitute. And so he does a deal so he can sleep with her. That's the kind of man he was. Do you know all the things we've already said about him? And now here he is as a widower. And he's sleeping with the person that he thinks is a local prostitute. Now, some people might want to read this story and say, hey, Tamar is, Tamar is not much of a, not much of a, of an example either, is she? That she would pretend to be a prostitute in order to entice her father-in-law. But let's not forget that she's been put in a situation by the faithlessness of Judah. And Judah is the big sinner in this story. Judah's the man who sold his brother as a slave. Judah is the man who has failed to keep his promise. Judah is the man who has, after his wife has died, has taken his first opportunity to sleep with a prostitute. And then when she's pregnant, out of wedlock, and word comes to Judah, he says, oh, Tamar's pregnant. Let's bring her out and burn her. 
And you realize the hypocrisy of this man. That in spite of all that he has done, as soon as he suspects his daughter-in-law, not realizing that he's been implicated in this, but as soon as he thinks his daughter-in-law has somehow stepped out of line, he wants to burn her. Isn't it funny that we can be hard on the sins of other people and turn a blind eye to our own sins? A.W. Tozer, who was a famous preacher in the 20th century, some of you will have read a lot of his stuff, he used to say that a Pharisee is hard on others but easy on himself. But a spiritual person is easy on others and hard on himself. That's Judah, isn't it? And Tamar then produces the pledges which she had taken from Judah when he slept with her. And when, he produces, when she produces these items, Judah realizes he's been found out and, out and he says, you know, she is more righteous than me. Twins are born. One of them's called Perez. And Perez will become part of the line that leads eventually to King David and eventually to Jesus. God rescues this awful story. I want to give you two words to take away from all of this. Rogues and rejects. Rogues and rejects. I remember reading a story about a, a father who was talking to his young daughter. I don't know, age, probably four or five, something like that. Talking to his young daughter about the fact that her grandfather was a preacher. And he said, you know, also your great-great-grandfather was a preacher. And your great-great-great-grandfather, had he was also a preacher. And the little girl was very impressed by this, this all these, you know, preachers, great-grandfathers and so on. And she said to him, wow, we come from a long line of grandfathers. Now, that wasn't quite the point that the father had wanted to make to his little girls. He was probably more interested in the preaching bit. One of the things about Jesus is as you read his story, you realize that Jesus came from a long line of broken stories of rogues and of rejects. I don't know if you ever dug into your, your own family, your own family heritage. Um, I don't know if you've discovered who your ancestors are. Um, I've discovered a little bit about some of mine um, in, in recent years. And actually, uh, just a few months ago in August, uh, I had the opportunity to preach in a church in Monaghan, uh, which about 100 years ago had been the church that my great-grandparents were part of. And uh, I remember thinking, well, if I had one of those DeLoreans from Back to the Future, I could have gone and preached, and then I could have gone and had lunch with my great-grandparents. That would have been very exciting. Um, but I don't know if you've dug back. Uh, you know, I, I dare say if you dig back in your family and you discover that, you know, somewhere, you know, a generation or two back, there was a, there was a preacher and God used that person to bring revival to a church. You'd be pretty pleased about that, wouldn't you? Or maybe there was somebody who was a, a doctor, a medical doctor who discovered a treatment for an illness that nobody had known how to treat up until that point. You'd be pleased about that. But what if there's a dodgy side? Maybe not so pleased about that. You may want to keep that a bit quiet, wouldn't you, if you had a dodgy side to your family? 
what if there are unpleasant things? And what, what in fact, if, you know, there are still people maybe who live in, in the, in the community that you live in, and when your family name is mentioned, they still go, oh yeah, I remember, remember the story about his great grandfather? Hmm. You know, that kind of, that kind of reputation. You know, a few years ago, there was an article in one of the newspapers, and it was, it was about genealogists, so people who work in the field, and they were a bit concerned for the amateur historians who were trying to dig up the details of their family tree. And the reason they were concerned was that they thought that people might discover some things that would end up, they would, it would mean they would end up needing counseling because of some of the stuff that they would discover. You think of the family line of Jesus. Rogues and rejects. Rogues like Judah. Rejects like Tamar, because that's what happened, isn't it? She was just kind of tossed out. Go back and live with your family. I don't care what happens to you. That's what Judah was saying. And yet those are the people that God used eventually to bring Jesus into the world. And here's the amazing thing to think about. It's that those rogues and rejects who made up the family that Jesus came from were really like a preview of the family that Jesus came for. You think of his ministry. You think of the time that he spent with rogues and rejects. You think of Zacchaeus, the little guy, maybe smaller than me even, the little guy who had to climb up a tree so that he could see Jesus. And Jesus said, come down out of that tree, Zacchaeus. I'm going to your house. Zacchaeus was a tax collector. He had wronged people. He had taken money from them that he shouldn't have taken from them. He'd worked for the Romans. He was a rogue. And Jesus said, I'm coming to your house. I've come for people like this. The rejects, you think of Jesus and he's sharing his table and he's sharing meal. And the people who are gathered around are not the, the religious professionals who are saying, well, this, this, this chap seems to have some really very interesting things to say about our Bible and about Abraham and David and so on. We should sit down and we should listen with him. No, they didn't want anything to do with him. The people who were drawn to him were the rejects, the tax collectors, the sinners the outsiders. He touched lepers. He welcomed children. The people that others had very little time for. And you realize that the family that Jesus came from points to the family that Jesus came to. And eventually he hangs on a cross. Who's on the either side of him? Two rogues who are paying for what they had done. And he's there in the middle, laying down his life for rogues and rejects. So that just as God redeems the story of Tamar and Judah and Bathsheba and David, Rahab and Ruth, just as God redeems that, those stories, so through what Jesus does and laying down his life and being raised again, God is able to bring redemption to 21st century rogues and rejects.
That is the grace of redemption. And that's the scarlet thread that doesn't just run through this genealogy, but it's the scarlet thread that runs all the way through Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We realize that this is a, an unusual passage. Um, and Lord, it's, it's also a very unusual and disturbing story. But yet, Lord, it's, it's through stories like this and through people like this that you have advanced this promise. You've kept your promise and you've brought Jesus to us. And Lord, we thank you that you've brought Jesus to us and the people that he came from <clears throat> are, are pointers to the people that he came for. So Lord, help us to receive your grace. Help us to live in your grace. And as we enter into this Advent season, this season of anticipation, Father, just give us a fresh excitement and enjoyment of the good news of the dawn of redemption. In Jesus' name, amen.